Hello, Feisties. I'm Sarah Gross, CEO and founder of Feisty Media. And I'm here to tell you that our foundational strength training course, Strong, is on sale now through April 10th. If you're like me, you probably get a lot of crap in your Instagram or Facebook feed telling you how you should look or how you will feel if you look a certain way. As summer approaches, this only gets worse. We are told we should have a quote-unquote summer body, as if our bodies somehow morph into something completely different just because the weather changes. And frankly, over here at Feisty Media, we are totally sick of it. Because at Feisty, our vision is to build an empowering culture for active women. We want to shift our attention away from what our bodies look like and focus instead on what our bodies can do especially during the summer months when having the physical strength to do the activities we love is so important. The Strong Course is designed to take any woman, regardless of your starting point, through everything you need to know to level up your strength training journey. It includes a 16-week program to help you progress from wherever you are to lifting heavy or heavy-ish with dumbbells or a barbell. It also includes modules on the physiology of strength training for women, nutrition, how we keep ourselves injury-free, and more. I want every woman to be able to do the things that bring her joy and be strong enough to do them for life. Enrollment in this course is now open and you can sign up and learn more at womensperformance.com forward slash strong or check the show notes of this episode for the link. And for those of you who are among the 800 women who have already taken the Strong Course with one of our previous cohorts, congratulations on taking the plunge. And to the rest of you, see you in the course in April. Make this summer your strongest and best ever. Head over to womensperformance.com forward slash strong today. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast. Today's guest, we are talking all about advocacy and even, you know, as important as advocacy, how to actually get paid for advocacy, why that matters, and just all things uh, balancing the heavily emotionally charged work that a lot of amazing people are doing with actually making a living doing it. So we have Molly Cameron, who is one of my all-time favorite cyclists. She is just this absolute powerhouse who has been advocating for trans rights for pretty much since I met her 15 or 16 years ago, uh, and also has put so much work into women's cycling in general. Um, she's owned bike shops. She's owned women's cycling teams. And now she's doing more full-time work as someone in cycling advocacy, you know, working for LGBTQ, uh, you know, DEI stuff with brands like Shimano. So doing really big work. She's going to be at the People for Bikes Summit in Bentonville, also at the World Cup. She was a huge proponent of bringing a lot of trans rights and advocacy work to the World Championships down in Bentonville last season. And we get into everything in this episode. It goes all over the place around, you know, what she does on a daily basis, what it looks like working with brands, how to actually ask for what you're worth, how to figure out what you're worth, uh, 
uh, and, you know, really just how to make all of that stuff happen. Um, and I think it's just such an important conversation because as we talk about, uh, as women, we're, we tend to not be as direct when it comes to asking, you know, what's the budget or as Molly puts it, cut the check, uh, which is my favorite new phrase. So we're talking all about how to actually make sure that you're getting paid for work that you are doing. And before we get into that, if you've been enjoying the content in this show and want to go deeper, the Outspoken Women in Endurance Sports Summit is the place for you. You'll get three days to focus on practical skills to help you grow your business and accelerate your leadership. And you'll hear from folks like Celine Yeager, who we've had on this podcast talking about writing books, all about how to write effectively. We'll have this podcast's producer, Carrie Barrett, on how to start your own podcast and all the practical stuff you need to know about that and so much more. So the event is November 11th to 13th in Tempe, Arizona, and you can find out more at OutspokenSummit.com. And with that said, let's get into this episode with Molly Cameron. All right. Molly Cameron, welcome to the Business of Fitness podcast. I am so excited to have you here. It's always a pleasure to uh, talk to you and really any other Molly in the cycling world. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm very, I'm very, very good. It's summertime. I'm in Portland. Portland summers are amazing. And I'm not traveling for a few weeks through the rest of September. So it's it's kind of nice to have a little break. Tiny little break. You've been on the road so much lately. Like I, I honestly don't know how you've been kind of keeping it all together. Uh, and maybe this is actually a good question I wanted to ask. I've been trying to ask everyone who comes on the show this first question of reality versus expectation. So, you know, when we're talking about your life as an athlete and an advocate, um, when you first thought about kind of doing all of this, or maybe when other people are thinking about what it looks like, uh, what do you think the expectation of this job is? And then what is the, uh, the actual reality of it? I, I think that the job is broad. You know, we could just say advocacy and there's like so many things that a person could do working as an advocate. Um, you know, I, I think for context, like I've technically been self-employed for over 20 years. I mean, going, you know, I only have only worked for like other people a hand, like, I don't know, less than a dozen times or something in my whole life. Uh, I haven't had a lot of traditional jobs, you know, um, and having owned a bike shop and then, you know, owning a women's team and a kind of like, I've basically been freelancing for the last 20 plus years. And so the obligations and responsibilities are a little different, but in a general sense, I would say that, right, the work comes first and the things you care about are going to come first. So if you take a step back, you know, for me, I think one of the questions you're asking was like, how do you describe what you do for work? And in general, I say, well, I'm an athlete and advocate. And then I would say, uh, in, I'm an athlete and advocate working, uh, let them, wait, hold on. I'll redo that. When people ask me what I do for work, I say, I'm an athlete and an advocate for marginalized communities within the outdoor industry. And then specifically, I work directly, uh, consulting and advising with brands and events on, you know, 
uh, inclusive diversity and and inclusion policy. And um, so I, I, I I pivoted into this coming from, you know, a sport background and I'm just getting back to the point of like, what do you care about? So to anybody in any kind of facet of this, it's one thing to like get hired at a job and, you know, that'd be amazing, you know, say a ex bike, you know, you and I have both been in and around cycling for a very long time. Um, if any, you know, bike brand, say a big bike company specialized was like, Hey, I'm going to hire you to be, you know, this ex person in, um, doing diversity and inclusion work or, you know, in advocacy within this business. So then your priority would be your obligation to your bosses. I think there are a lot of people and a lot of folks like us that are doing advocacy work that are either freelancing or, you know, self-employed or have contract work, which I guess is all technically freelancing. And I always just say like, what is important to you? Again, so backing up a little for me, you know, I was like running a women's team. I ran a bike shop. Those things are really important to me because that's what paid the bills and they were what I was passionate about. And then the pandemic happened and there were no races to go to. So the women's team just kind of like there was just this weird pause and it wasn't even intentional. Right? It wasn't intentional for any of us. We all thought we were going to have normal lives. And then all of a sudden by whatever, February, March, we're like, oh, we're, we're fucked. Like nothing's happening. So what became important to me in that first year of the pandemic, um, you know, the bike racing and the women's team and the athletes and all this stuff was really important, but then that just like went away. And so that is kind of when I pivoted into shooting photos and video. We can talk about that later, but then it was the next year when the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson signed, you know, the first of a handful of pieces of, you know, uh, anti-trans specifically, but anti-LGBTQIA plus anti-queer legislation and into law and i got kind of uh drawn into this discussion and then a couple months later i was like well i'm really good at doing this work and um i was like i'm doing so again what did i care about like that's something i've cared about for decades i mean well before i raced bikes and um you know, when I, in the nineties and the, when I lived in San Francisco, the Bay area, I was more involved in like activism and I would go to protests and we would do a lot of actions and I was doing a lot more straight up like activist work. And, you know, that stuff never went away. But then when I owned a bike shop, you know, what I cared about, my priority was this business and like trying to, you know, run the business and then the women's team. And it was like the women's team and trying to run us, you know, a, a successful, uh, sustainable women's team. And then, you know, my own personal career. So if we kind of go to like a couple of years ago, me being drawn into this, basically I got drawn into advocating for like, you know, specifically the transgender community in Arkansas. But then very quickly, it was like dozens of other states. And, you know, now two years into this kind of assault on everything LGBTQ, um, I'm advocating for the larger community, you know? And, and, and so it wasn't really like an, a planned intentional thing pivoting into this, but it, it suited my, you know, my skill set and my, um, even, even my partners and my sponsors from, you know, my own personal, uh, backers and then supporters of the women's team, like pivoting into this stuff was a really organic fit. And I would say, you have to really 
be honest to answer your question, be honest about what you care about. You know, it's, it's okay to care about having a career, right? And, and if you can make a viable career or you can get a job, you know, with an advocacy organization or with a business and have a career, if, you know, I don't want to say if money is important to you, but if a sustainable career is important to you, that's like one thing, you know, then there's, okay, the, you know, the ethical and moral stuff, the stuff we care about, what, whatever, um, let's say issue or concern you have, like, is that, you know, how much do you care about that? And then you could take somebody like me and you, where we're both athletes and we've both really cared a lot about, you know, that I'm sure the, the, the giving a shit about being an elite athlete has ebbed and flowed for both of us over the years, but we both really cared about it. Um, and that's something I'm so acutely aware of now because I just, time is everything. And especially as I'm getting older, I still really care about advocating for marginalized communities. And I really care about, you know, it's a weird thing for me to say as an anti-capitalist capitalist, like this is a whole other podcast discussion, but you know, this is one of the first times in 25 years of being, you know, self-employed and running a small business uh, that I've actually been in the black, you know, I've just been creating debt for years, especially running the women's team, you know, like when I'm doing it, I'm so passionate about it and I care about it. And then the thing that, so that's the thing when you think about what you care, when I was running the women's team and in doing my own racing, like those things were the most important things. And that's what I really cared about. And what I didn't really care about was money, you know? And so it's simple as that. I went through, you know, running my women's team. I made it sustainable in the sense that like I was going to honor my commitments and my contracts to my riders, you know, to the letter. And then I would make it sustainable. So the program could continue year to year. And I felt this, like, uh, you know, this, uh, the obligation I put on myself to just like give back to women's cycling and really like, we need more women racing. We need more women at races. We need, need more women's races. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's such a huge disparity and, and, you know, what, you know, income gap, there's a whole lot of problems there. And so anyways, I really cared about women's cycling and particularly women's racing. And then I didn't give a shit about like putting money in savings and like being a sustainable adult. Right. And it's not like, which is so funny because you literally just said like, you know, women need to make money racing their bikes. And I'm making sure that the women on my team are making money and like getting paid. And then here you are, like not caring about that for yourself. And like, (laughs) that is a really acute and wild thing. I definitely like, I definitely did not pay every woman on the team. I want to be upfront and clear about that, but some of the really good writers, you know, I could pay, I, you know, we'd pay and negotiate a little salary. And sometimes the salaries were bullshit. It'd be like a 5k stipend for a year. And I was like, that's all I got. You know, like there's not a lot of money here. And it is funny in hindsight, I'm like, there are some women I would pay like 20 K a year, you know, even like 10 or 15 K a year. And I laughed now because I'm like, right. I wasn't taking home anything. You know, I like, I wasn't paying myself. I was trying to pay, you know, whatever staff and like mechanic, you know, mechanics or drivers. And then the, you know, the riders when I could that it just, it, we, uh, this is a whole other thing with women's cycling, which wasn't really, I know what the point is, but it all ties together. You know, it's, it's all like constantly advocating for marginalized communities. And in this case, like just, women bike racers are a fucking marginalized community because they're like, they're never at this point, never going to get paid as much or the same as, as men. There aren't as many opportunities, you know, in, in the last few years, there's just less and less. And yeah, 
it's a tough go. Women have, women are fighting for a lot out there. And Mm -hmm. well, and I think kind of part of what you're saying, uh, you kind of like alluded to like the, uh, it's, you know, hard to be a capitalist and like, uh, the anti-capitalist like tendencies come out here. But I think maybe, you know, what you're kind of coming to is like, it is okay to want to make money for the work that you're doing. Like, it's okay to want to have that in your life. Like there's something wrong with that. And I think that's actually how women get like brainwashed because we Mm. get kind of told that like racing bikes is like this fun thing that we're supposed to just do for the love. Advocacy is a thing that we're supposed to just do because it's the right thing to do. But like with like no expectation of ever, you know, getting paid for all of the labor you're putting into it. And I mean, oh my gosh, like how many years and hours (laughs) would you say you you've put into advocacy work before, you know, you're, you were making any money for any of it yeah yeah i mean exactly like i don't want to overplay i mean i wasn't like some great radical activist and doing some like world-changing things in the 90s but like you know people that have known me for a long time are like you're really kind of just doing the same exact thing you've always done you know you uh, like even with me being openly trans and like, you know, uh, even being vegan and stuff like that. It's really funny because I never, ever, I mean, intentionally never, ever wanted to like lead with my identity in anything I did, whether it was my, you know, racing or my business. And, you know, I'm like, well, now the, the, the conversation's different. Like brands want to talk about this. Sustainability is really, really important. The environment is really important, you know, but I'm like, it's always been important. Like, you know, I I was in the nineties, I was in my early, you know, early twenties. So that's kind of when I was able to come to like a consciousness of these issues, you know, and start like forming my identity and my opinions. And, you know, again, things I care about, what do I care about? I went vegan for the environment. You know, I I wasn't this hardcore animal rights activist. I went vegan because I realized, and then through, you know, the, education research I could do without the internet in the nineties, which was like going to rallies and protests and, and punk shows and literally being like, okay, like factory farming's horrible for the planet. You know, eating meat is horrible for the planet because of how it's produced and all this. And like, yeah, yeah, sure. You can have a small micro farm and it'd be fully sustainable. Yeah. That's not what's actually really happening in the world. And that's why I went vegan. I was like, this is wild. And it's interesting because so many of my politics were very personal, you know, even me, I, um, you know, ultimately coming out in the nineties and identifying as queer and then identifying as trans woman. And I really strongly believe like personal politics are so important and, you know, recycling and, you know, doing all these small things are really, really important. <clears throat> I'm actually kind of having a shift now. And this, this kind of ties into like, um, the work I'm doing with brands like Shimano, a huge global brand, you know, it's a gigantic, I mean, <clears throat> this number one brand in, in cycling. It, it's just, it's almost unfathomable for us to grasp what real change on a global scale looks like. And uh, it is law and policy, you know, Shimano North America here in the U S it can have a little influence, but they're not the ones dictating global policy for Shimano Japan, which is like, you know, the, the <clears throat> parent company. And, you know, ultimately real change, like trying to save our environment, trying to stop polluting the water, uh, you know, the oceans, that stuff's got to come at the top. So it, it's, it's, it's really weird. You know, back when I was a, a little young, it's not even about being younger, but 
in the nineties, you know, I was like, personal politics are so important. What I do and you know, what I buy and, and do. Yes. Like it is important. It is really important. Like, I don't want to just say, ah, fuck it. Just buy everything, you know, like do whatever you want, be a consumer, but traveling a lot, you know, and you've traveled, we've both traveled like certainly Europe, but like kind of all over the world, you know, did you, I think you went to China, didn't you? I did. That's actually yeah. where I yeah, met yeah, Peter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, you know, like, do you remember, were you there? I mean, I went over for China Cross a few times and like at least a couple of the years, the pollution in Beijing certainly was like bonkers. And that was, I mean, this is stuff that like I've known again since the nineties when I was like a young radical and then, but being there and seeing it, you know, like we could see trash in the streets or on our mountain bike trails and, you know, and being there and being like, right like this is fucking horrible and like that's the future the world is headed towards and it, it's a reality in beijing and it's like oh it's just china that's fucked up you know it's bad and i'm like no that's the whole world so i don't have a great like <laughs> you know there's, there's not like a positive end to my ram- ramble here but small changes at bigger levels are going to impact a lot more than like you know, again, even here in this liberal white Mecca of Portland, Oregon, where everybody recycles and there's all these community gardens and all this shit. I'm just like, you know, it's this one city of like now about a million people in this overwhelmingly conservative and red state that doesn't give a shit about most of these issues. And there, there, there is some overlap, you know, I'm not, I don't want to talk about conservative versus liberal or anything, but these, At a certain point, the environment's going to affect everybody. And then people like ranchers and farmers, uh, in rural areas are going to care about stuff like that. So there is like opportunity for interesting overlap. <clears throat> and then, and then, and then I go, well, how does this like relate to LGBTQ issues and transgender rights and all of that? And like, without getting too much into like abstracts and weird academic theory that I'm, I'm not an ap- academic, but it's largely about conversations and relationships. You know, like if I can have a conversation with some rancher and I'm not like ramming it down his throat that like farming is bad, eating meat is horrible. You're the worst person. I've been vegan for 30 years. Like, Oh, you got to save the planet. But if we can find some common ground and, and you know, it's, and again, it's maybe not necessarily just about like one rancher, but it is about, you know, these larger corporations that it, you know, corporations are seen as this evil and Amazon is this evil. And it's like, yeah, but things like Amazon are are not going away in our lifetimes. So like what we need to do is like try to influence them to make better choices for the environment, which will, you know, maybe be a little painful and expensive at first, but will end up becoming more and more and more sustainable. Um, You know, and small things like I, I, there's a tiny little bit of press about it and they're not getting enough press, but quiet, you know, another thing about working with Shimano is they're they're pretty quiet about what they do. They don't make big press releases. So they didn't like make a big announcement like, hey, we have made a major pivot away from plastics in our packaging. Most of their packaging is entirely uh paper or recyclable materials now. And, you know, packages started showing up in the last year or two. And then I would be like, oh, this is great. Instead of these little plastic baggies for all the little accessories and parts, like everything's paper now. And it's great. I mean, you can recycle it or compost. I mean, compost it, you know, it's just raw paper. Um, so stuff like that gives me some hope. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. 
So, think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match and then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule, how much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose.
And that actually makes me want to ask you a question, you know, as you're mentioning Shimano, working with brands in this sphere is very difficult because, you know, a lot of brands kind of, and I I know you've had this happen, a lot of brands just kind of want to hire you to say that they've hired this, you know, someone who's going to talk about like DEI stuff and like, oh, we've, we've hired an expert. So like, we're, we're done. We've ticked that box. We can move on. Um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with like turning down companies or like finding the right companies to work with? Because that's a huge thing. Yes. And not in any business's defense, but I think the larger problem the larger dynamic that happens is certainly let's, let's just like focus in on the cycling industry. They don't even know what to do. Um, and so they want to do something. I'm going to say that the majority of cycling brands in the U S are all foreign owned and they're owned by a European headquarter, you know, an Italian, you know, Campagnola is Italian, Shimano is Japan, SRAM is Chinese, you know, like, or Taiwanese and forgive me. Um, and you know, they don't know, like the US offices are like, we got to do something. And then, you know, yeah, they make these, let's just say, diversity hires, you know? And that's something that a couple years ago, I mean, a couple years ago, it really was like Black Lives Matter jump started a lot of this, just changing the landscape a bit in business, like across the board not just in cycling industry, you know, every business, you know, and there are riots and, you know, cops are killing black folks and, you know, it hasn't stopped. This that stuff is still going on. There hasn't been some big radical change in, in us policing, but I, you know, in a good way, I was able to leverage that the next spring. And again, unintentionally when like all this anti-trans stuff, let pieces of legislation started popping up everywhere. And I, I was kind of, we were kind of like, what the hell is happening? And all of a sudden we're like, there's hundreds of these bills in like dozens of states. This is like, you know, half the country. And, you know, brands have realized like human rights, you know, black lives are actually important to people and that there are these very, very real issues. And the pandemic helped enable that for sure. I mean, because we had nothing, there was nothing else going on and, you know, people were isolated and there were you know, a lot of different dynamics, but in business, you know, brands were like, we need to really need to pay attention and like, listen, how do you how do you determine like whether a company is actually going to do the things that they say they're going to do? Or I mean, flip side, like, is it necessarily like wrong, I guess, even to to take a job when it's not necessarily going to affect a lot of change, but perhaps you being hired is at least like some indicator of progress? Like, do you not take it or do you take it and do what you can? Right, exactly. Um <clears throat> I talk about this one a lot. Okay. Well, again, going back to the, like, well, what do you care about? You know, and if you're going to dive into, or if you're going to make a career choice, a business decision to start trying to do advocacy work or consulting for pay, I think it's just like any other, you need to realize like this is just consulting, you know, like even if, again, let's use specialize as one example and Nothing, you know, this is an anti or it's just a brand that everybody can kind of recognize and identify. Like, say they go out and hire a DEI person, a person to do advocacy or sustainability work. Well, you know, it's important to like 
keep in mind, like this is a job and it's not your business unless you're an owner or on the board. Like you don't actually have much of a say. We all like to, you know, believe we can influence these businesses and they need to listen to us. And you hired us. I mean, and that's an important thing to keep in check is like, really analyze the hell out of this business. You know, again, is it foreign owned? Where's the money coming from? I mean, money, money, money. It's all money. When you pay attention, just follow the money. And then that'll help you dictate and develop. A, that'll help you develop a strategy for implementing the changes or the policies that you want to see. You know, like, the, I mean, you know, you kind of assume if you're getting hired to do, you know, any kind of advocacy or DEI or sustainability work, with a business, you know, they're, they're bringing you in because they need help. Most businesses, again, it's about money. You know, if this, you really do have to take a business case to a lot of this. And that's not absolutely true all the time. You know, every once in a while, you'll have a business where it's uh, often like a family owned business or like a sole, a single owner. And there can be like an emotional case. You know, there are plenty of, I mean, this, you see this women's cycling and actually in all pro domestic us bike racing call them like angel investors you know there's usually just some rich guy that likes bike racing maybe he races as a kid or has a kid that's racing and then decides to throw like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars towards a cycling program because they have the money and they just want to do it and you know it's like the marketing ROI. You're like, you're spending a million of dollars on a year on this team. And like, you're, what's the return and how's it helping you make money? Well, people that have that much money don't necessarily need to, and there can be brand building. And like, so all these things, you know, look at the ownership, look at how the business makes money and how they spend money. And then really just do a critical assessment of that. And that will really should really influence how you work with and approach the brand. Um, it's totally fair to be very critical. Um, you know, I'm white and I think people of color are in uh, a more unique and ooh, I don't want to say challenging necessarily, but it's like absolutely people of color are going to be like diversity higher. I mean, you know, the bike industry is still overwhelmingly white. Bike racing is still overwhelmingly white. And there's definitely, a, again, two or three years ago, black, the summer of Black Lives Matter. And then every brand's like, oh, we got a new DEI and we got to hire a black person or, you know, oh, let's find the one black person in our company and be like, hey, Marsha, you know, do you have any friends that want to work here kind of shit? And so like, that's, a, a, you know, a challenging and unfortunate dynamic. So it's important to be really, really critical, but also I'm like, get fucking paid, get paid, take that money, get paid. I mean, I've been saying, cut the check. How many brands have come to me, you know, marketing managers, brand managers, I was at Cycle Cross Worlds this January and like the brand managers from the three big brands, three or four big brands in the US all came up. Why aren't you on our bikes? And I'm like, cut the check. You tell me. None of them cut the check. So I know I'm not on their bikes, you know. <clears throat> There's a world in which like I, you know, you have to assess your own value and what you're bringing to the table. And this kind of circling back to why we're talking, you know, I'm an athlete and an advocate, you know, I, I was doing bike pro bike racing until, you know, up into the pandemic and, you know, and then I've pivoted into like some very serious like advocacy work and consulting. And um, I have a unique value because, you know, I, I am, an elite athlete i've had some pro racing experience you know and i think that the athletic community respects me i've also been a business owner for 20 something years you know and so then the bike industry and the industry and the business community knows me and respects me and i mean that was when i started ride i was like that's intentional how can i leverage this really the reason i started ride i was just talking to someone else about this this week 
it wasn't like, I'm going to start an advocacy organization. I just was like already doing this work and a couple months had gone by and I was like, well, not, okay, I'm stressed out. This works really hard and draining and emotional. And rem- remember, I keep talking about like, what do you care about? I really care about it. <clears throat> I care about it so much. It's also very immediate. You know, there's this issue in Arkansas and then there's world championships less than a year later. You know, I'm looking at all these things, the laws and policies and, you know, the race and the UCI and USA cycling and, and, uh, and I remember with that one, like that, that's maybe like such a good example of something that I kind of wanted to touch on is you're making these decisions that, you know, could impact like huge organizations, right? Like I remember with the cyclocross world thing, you tweeting, like, I am not saying boycott cyclocross worlds yet. Like that is not what we're saying because that was sort of the knee jerk reaction. And I think it takes, you know, you have to walk a very fine line when you're doing this work of like really measuring all of these different sides to stuff and like the impact of what you say. Right. Um, it's such a huge emotional burden. Um, and that I think is something that people maybe miss a little bit. Uh, advocacy work is obviously stuff that you deeply, deeply care about, but there's so much emotional stuff that's tied up in it, uh, you know, for, for better or worse. Like, how do you deal with just all of the inputs and, and, you know, taking care of your own, you know, mental health as you're doing this? Cause it's, it's so much. Yeah. It's a lot. And specifically this type of work. I mean, the work that all the advocates and activists in, you know, certainly in the U S that summer black lives matter where like black people are dying and getting killed. And like, that's this very real emotional fucking brutal thing. And, you know, same thing now in the last couple well, last year and a half, two years of this anti-trans, you know, um, assault on transgender rights and the larger, you know, LGBTQIA community. And that's real. Like people are dying and that's hard. And then, you have these micro and kind of like my mid, mid, not macro aggressions, but you know, just the constant, there's just so much and it is a struggle. And that's where it's like, well, what do you care about? And, you know, I, I really care about riding my bike and being a professional athlete. Well, like that is like the, was the first thing that goes away when I'm working, you know, when I do work, I mean, even when I owned a bike shop, you know, retail bike shop, when the shop was crazy busy and I had stuff to do, like I have to give a shit about that because it's how I pay rent and I have to pay my payroll and my employees and, you know, stay on top of that. Cause if that goes away, everything goes away. Um, and now it's kind of my mental health. I mean, honestly, the, like the last year, last year, calendar year was brutal. 2021, like the whole year, I just was going so hard and then going to events and not really riding or training truly really wasn't riding bikes much. I would just go to events and ride them. And, and I was like trying to be an elite athlete still. And it just was brutal. Um, and, and I did more of the same. I, I rode maybe a little bit more this spring, but then same thing is like, there's just so much. And so I care about being an elite athlete, but that's the first thing in the hierarchy of what I give a shit about that takes a step back because well, now after long, long conversations, you know, I'm, work for Shimano and I uh, am still do consulting with other brands, you know, and working with all these events and I mean, individual people and organizations and the last year was kind of like putting out fires, a lot of it. 
And I was like, we knew the world championships was coming and, and just, we knocked it out of the park. I mean, that was the thing, all the hard work we did, you know, instead of boycotting the world championships in Arkansas, I went to Arkansas and built a lot of relationships and then working with the community there, you know, we, they made the world championships a real sol- show of solidarity for the transgender community. I mean, there was like overwhelming representation and, I, I feel like that is one of the, certainly one of the only cycle cross world championships that's actually had this, you know, I, it's unfortunate that it's political, but just like a human rights statement made at, you know, on the stage, you know, and there's a real like feel of unity there with like the U S national team and, um, you know, the team riders and other, you know, even people not on the team, you know, all the, a lot of the elites and the pro riders like really felt, I don't know, crossroads was, great you know that race was going to happen no matter what and i knew that and i was like well how can we leverage this into a good visibility and representation and and it was great too and the other thing that was great about it was we did that and it didn't like affect the event at all it wasn't a negative thing in the least so this is the stuff i take back to my partners and the people that again you know like i'm guess i'm still technically a freelancer i have contracts you know all my partners and relationships are contracts i'm not getting you know i'm not on anybody's payroll so there's a lot of freedom there, but also, you know, I, I honestly, I wish in a way, I don't know if I wish it, but there is still a part of me that would, maybe I feel that I could get more done if I actually worked for a brand. I could take Shimano, you know, for instance, you know, they're, again, they're Japanese owned and I'm, you know, advising and working directly with North America, but you know, I don't speak to Japan at all. It kind of goes through North America. And so I, I, I try to help influence them and steer them in what I think is the right direction. But ultimately I have to just be like, well, it's not my business. You know, Shimano is going to do Shimano and ultimately Shimano Japan is going to do Shimano for the world and all of their, um, and there's a part of me that's like, well, if I worked for Shimano, but then I don't actually think that's true. I think this is a, and so this might be a piece to people, you know, to the listeners, it's a little unknown. There will be instances in businesses where like you could come in and make really great change. You know, like I have actually specialized as a good case. I have personally known people and I've worked with people that have been in various like, you know, DEI or sustainability roles at specialized and have been doing like really incredible shit and like Im- implementing really cool things. Um, whether it's like marketing or storytelling or like better hiring practices, you know, and more inclusive hiring practices. And yeah, you can implement real change but there is also a lot of room to play when you are freelancing and you are your own boss but i have a bit i'm meeting with my cpa this week so there were a bunch of questions that we were going to talk about maybe we can pivot into them um the bookkeeping side of being a freelancer as all freelancers know is just exhausting you know even i always laugh when i'm like Oh, I have to do invoicing. Like, Oh my God. I'm like, yeah, but like, I'm going to get, I got to get paid. I got to do all this extra work just to get cut that fucking check. I got to cut the check for myself. So I have to do all the work, you know? Um, yeah, I literally had to do that to myself this morning. Like just sit down and get your invoices out. Just do it. Like no problem getting the articles in, but like when it comes to, yeah, then asking for the money for them, I somehow like, uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, you said it earlier, especially for women. This is a thing that women get like tricked into feeling guilty about and asking for the things that they're owed. And, you know, you see this on every, everywhere, you know, like not even just in business, you know, I mean, and 
Yeah, it's a challenge. And so being your own boss is really challenging, can also be really fulfilling. I'm definitely in a very privileged place in the sense of like, I have been my own boss for such a long time. So it was not, it was not scary for me. It was, it was scary in a sense, but it wasn't a big leap for me to go from running a bike race team and, you know, owning a bike shop and then a bike race team. And then, you know, even me being like, uh, you know, I've been a privateer for 20 years of being a bike racer, you know, and, and I'm like, truthfully, no big team wanted to sign me. I was transgender. Like, you know, like, what are you dude? Are you a woman? What are you, what are you category are you going to race? Like nobody wanted to hire a trans person for the last 20 years. Like I tried to get jobs and try to race for other teams. Like nobody wanted to touch me. Also, you know, like I wasn't the greatest talent. I wasn't like winning UCI races or shit like that. So like, you know, it wasn't a big pivot for me to like start doing some consulting and then getting paid for the consulting. But it wasn't, it still is actually, it was a challenge for me to figure out what rate do I charge? You know, cause I was like, I haven't been doing this for that long though. Then I was like, wait, I have. And with my business experience, certainly like in this little ecosystem of cycling, right? Like with bike racing and the cycling business and industry and manufacturing and, you know, cycling brands, like I'm really familiar with all this stuff. It just like was really wild to pivot into this. And like, I'm really grateful. Uh, okay. Actually, I'm not grateful at all that I'm doing advocacy work. I wish I wasn't right. Like this work is brutal. And I'm, it's, <clears throat> I feel like I didn't really answer how I manage it. It's, it's hard. The summer was crazy busy. You know, being at events is like both uplifting and exhausting. I've had some amazing experiences, mostly overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive experiences this summer. A, a few just like devastatingly, brutally hard just frustrating and exhausting experiences and conversations, you know, and there's still a lot of work to do, but that's why I'm not traveling. I had events in September and I, I forget where the hell I went. I was, uh, uh, I went to Rebecca's private Idaho and, you know, this is a 10 hour drive and I drove out, raised that. It was amazing. Came back to Portland and I was like, I need to be settled for a bit because as a, a self-employed advocate, and consultant and athlete, I have to like get on top of my invoicing. Um, I sent an invoice out that I should have sent in February. You know, like it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's also like, I shouldn't, you know, it's embarrassing to put out publicly, but look like this is the reality too for like when summertime's here is a busy season for like everybody, not just bike racers and not just the cycling industry. Like it's busy for everybody. Everybody's got family and kids and obligations and travel. And now, now we can travel again. So things have been crazy. And I'm using this time to kind of recharge and just chill and hang out with my cat, get on top of my invoicing. One of the things I'm working on is the rate sheet so that uh, I'm speaking at the people for bike shift conference next month. And, you know, I haven't even figured out my rate, you know, and, and it's like, I need a rate sheet even just for myself. So I have it in a PDF. I have, I have, you know, I have it, but again, this is the thing that as you know, and most of our listeners know, like, this takes time, you know, it's not going to take me all day to build this sheet, but it'll take a few hours on top of like trying to stay on top of emails and do some media and interview, you know, like there, I'm, there's still so much happening for me. And again, what do I, I care so much about being a bike racer and riding bikes? I haven't ridden a bike since Rebecca's private Idaho two over two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. uh, I, I'm coming to terms with that because now how I make my living is less about my racing performance and results and absolutely more about 
one of the other things I have to do this week is create a PowerPoint slide deck to present to Shimano to talk about like, you know, the, the state of diversity and inclusion, like inclusion at the events that I was at this year and, you know, kind of what the state of things out there in the world are, because, you know, there's a lot of people at Shimano that are events, but there's also a whole bunch that are not. And the, you know, the VPs and the executives that like I work directly with, they want, they need to know. So I have to, my job now is to not only, you know, this is part of the thing too, that I think anyone that wants to, to, to try to make a living doing advocacy work is again, like understanding your client, whether your client's a business or a brand or an event, you know, or even a person, you know, and I mean, this, this applies to politics too, you know, understand who your constituents, who's like, who's your audience. And then my job is to take all this work I've done, you know, and you need to show it. So show your work and, you know, with invoicing, that's like receipts, keep receipts for everything, keep receipts for everything. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if it's email or print. Email is great. You can just like email it to yourself, text it to yourself, keep receipts for everything, add that to your invoices. Um, and that's showing your work, you know, and, um, and then, uh, I have to build a spreadsheet and sorry, I have to build a PowerPoint slide deck, just basically recapping the summer on top of the weekly email updates I send out to the full list of, you know, again, being an athlete and, advocate i have like you know an email list of like you know my bike industry my bike sponsor and helmet and clothing sponsor and all my partners but then also like some of the orgs and events i work with you know brands i consult with i send out a general update but then tailored to each client that is paying me like i have a report you know and um you know in a way i'm lucky that they're quarterly and so there's this thing where like i wish they were weekly i wish i would have a meeting every week with you know any of my you know, my contacts, my point of contacts at Shimano or any, anybody I consult with, you know, but we're all so busy. Um, and I also have to just realize I'm going to put all this work and energy into, you know, showing my work, showing what I've done. Um, you know, I've been luckily, like I have been taking photos so I can use my own photos and build a, a slide deck and send it over. And then I have to also realize, you know, I can make recommendations or I can say, you know, here's places where Shimano was strong here, are places where Shimano was weak and needed work. I can present some criticism. Um, and I can, but also like, that's it. I see you send it away and you know, everybody's busy. And then, you know, Shimano, not Shimano's not the only one, you know, uh, if I get an email back, great, you know, and I can follow up. You know, this isn't, you know, this is the thing about working with businesses and corporations, you know, sure, in a way, there's like corporations are the enemy. And it's just like, well, corporations that are fucking up and, you know, polluting the environment and and being sinister are the enemy. But you just have to realize business is business. Um, Businesses aren't in business to save the environment. Well, some are. Businesses aren't in business to do anything but make more money. You know, that's their whole point. Though... Some business you just saw, uh, what's his name? Jan Schenard, uh, Patagonia. Big news this week, right? Last week. I don't understand. I didn't, I just glanced at the headline when I was like falling asleep and I was like, wow, cool. Patagonia is now owned by the planet. Okay. Awesome. So like that is this like super rare case. Patagonia has always been like that, this kind of activist business, which is very rare. I mean, you know, that's probably one of a handful of companies that have ever operate like that in the world. So, if you understand businesses are in business 
for business, for capitalism, for money. Now, like my job is to like show my work and then try to steer the ship and guide the leadership of these businesses or organizations into making better decisions or, you know, allocating more budget to me so I can do more work. But then I have to like, you know, I, I really, one thing, you know, it's not an absolute that you have to have a business case in your advocacy or activist work, but a lot of times it really, it can really quickly help them cut the fucking check because ultimately like, you need money to do what you do your work again. And this is the guilty part, right? You and I are both like, I got to do this trans advocacy because I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I basically was like, I, in a year ago when I was drawn into this trans specifically in Arkansas and these laws that were like targeting the transgender community and their families and everybody in Arkansas. And I was being drawn into this and I was like working on this so hard every day. I mean, literally these like 12 and 15 hour days, I'll just wake up, make coffee work and just be on my computer and working and emailing and calling. And then, you know, I felt like things were moving. And then I was like, I'm burning out like six weeks went by and I was like, I'm, I'm cracked. I'm emotionally cracked. I'm not, I'm not taking care of my relationships. I'm not riding bikes. I'm not doing anything else, but this work. I either need to be getting paid to do this or I need to step out. Um, you know, and, and I felt guilty thinking that. And then I'm like, well, I shouldn't feel guilty. You know, like Molly, the camera doesn't have to save the world. And I say this to you, all of your, all of your listeners, like it's, it's not on you to change everything and save the world. Like you have to make sure your mental health and your family life and your home life, your partner, if you got kids or, you know, I got a cat, I got to make sure my cat's taken care of. She's got anxiety. I need to take care of her. You got to make sure your life is right. Otherwise you're going to be garbage. So you can really, really give a shit about advocacy, really care about it. But if everything else falls away and your whole world's on fire and is a mess and, you know, you cannot afford housing or anything, you know, basic living things, then it's going to, everything's going to come undone and you're not going to be useful to anybody. And I definitely hit that point last year, a couple of times in this year, a few times where I was like, you know, and in a smaller way, like in the course of a month or, I mean, you know, even this month, you know, I went to Rebecca's private Idaho and I knew I was running on fumes and, you know, I, I felt my racing. I felt like I was running on fumes emotionally and mentally and even physically, you know, and then I was like, all right, I need to, I need to take care of myself. So I came home and like, luckily the events later in this month were, you know, there were ones that I could back out of and say, Hey, I, you know, I'm not going to come down. I really wanted to be at Rome Fest. I think it's, I don't remember, is it Sedona or Fruta this, this coming weekend? Yeah. Fruta. I've never been to Fruta. I, I love Ash and Andy and the Rome Fest, but I was like, I need, I need a break. I need to not travel. I need to get on top of my billing and my invoicing and get my business life right so that I can go into the fall and winter and, you know, not be continually be on the back foot. And then my mental health, I just need to like be home, water the plants and uh, tend the garden and, you know, <laughs> work on my van a little bit. And yeah. And okay. On a practical level here. Yeah. How are you keeping all of these different projects that are in all different stages? And I imagine your inbox is like 800 emails a day. Like, how do you keep all of this stuff organized? Like, what apps are you using? How often are you checking your inbox? Like, what are the oh. tools? And then how do they, how do they shift from like when you're home to like when you're on the road? Cause on the road is even harder to like stay on top of stuff with time zones changing and it's, it's a nightmare. So how the hell are you doing it? 
Um, I'm probably like the worst. I mean, I definitely have ADD or ADHD and, um, okay. Backing out a little bit. I got to a point, you know, Shimano is a big partner of mine. And so it represents a big chunk of my income. And so again, I have to be like, well, I have to prioritize this big partnership client and really ultimately like it's a relationship, like, and that's allowed me to say no to a lot this year, you know, not just in this last few weeks where I was like, I'm not going to go to this one event. You know, it was like, no, no. And even, even working with them, they were like, we don't need you doing something every weekend or even every month. Like, let's pick a handful of things we're going to do this year, three things and knock them out of the park. Right. And that's like, just the point backing out is like, I'm actually, this is the first year again, I've been, working for myself technically for 25 years since the late nineties. And this is the first time I was like, I can stop hustling. Well, I'm still hustling, but I, I don't have to hustle every minute of every day and check my email, my phone and constantly like trying to like, you know, say yes to everything. And it's been really good because it's when, you know, when you're overwhelmed I, you know, I don't love being like a Jill of all trades, like a Jack of all trades is like, does a bunch of stuff, but isn't good at anything. You know, everything's like, okay. And I'm like, I would rather, you know, be really good at what I'm delivering to Shimano and working with them. And then, you know, realizing like, okay, uh, up front, I mean, even this winter, I was like, maybe I can ride my bike and train a little, but I know that like being a top level pro athlete probably isn't going to manifest this year. So, all right, that's going to be, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of saying no to that. I'm going to like not stress out about not training a lot. And I'm just going to kind of like let it come as it does, but being able to say no to a lot, you know, and yes. So my inbox is full. It's crazy. But part of it is like the anxiety. Like I don't have that anxiety. Like I feel bad. There's an email from Meyerson. He made a recommendation and I'm like, I got to get back to it. But I literally haven't even had, like I saw it and I didn't even click on it. Right. And that's the thing I would do is I would say, Oh, Meyerson, an intro for some consulting work. And I would click on it just to get a sense. And I was like, I can't even do that anymore. So these are just my personal tips. I'm not recommending anybody follow these because I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not a great you know, uh, productivity to, guru. <laughs> no, I'm not a productivity guru, but personally, I've been working a lot harder on focusing on like doing what I can do and be effective and like getting it done. And, you know, I work okay. Like I work fine with deadlines. Like I have, I want to get this PowerPoint slide done by tomorrow. And that's fine. Like I can give myself a deadline. All right, 9 a.m. tomorrow, I need to hit send on it. It's just going to be done. So, you know, I can, but you don't want to like cram all the time. You don't want to be forcing yourself, you know, because then there's more stress and anxiety. Like I have to get this thing done. Um, And because with the nature of like travel so much, you know, you're right. Like when I travel in the last couple of years, I just realized it was like nothing happens when I travel. And it's a good and bad thing because I, I look at my calendar and like, you know, I have like, I'll block out the whole days of like from the flight all the way through the flight, either back or onto the next event. Right. And so there'll be like a five or six day blocked out period on my calendar. And it just says, whatever rule of three in Arkansas, cause I'll be there for 10 days. Nothing will happen in that day. And then that allows, and then on those days, and that allows me to like be available. You know, if my phone rings and I see it's you, like I can actually answer, you know, just be like, Hey, what's up? And like, sure. I've got 20 minutes or like, 
sure, I actually have an hour or two right now. But also it allows me to be present because like a big piece of the like hands-on advocacy work I'm doing is like just being at events and the representation piece and relationship building. You know, like I've just always been about people. People are everything and relationships are everything. And I want to be like present and authentic. I don't, you know, for years, I, my, my people are like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm busy and tired and stressed out. And that's what I've been saying. I mean, again, owning a retail business, I think most retailers would say that, you know, it's, it's a hard grind. And then trying to be an athlete on top of that. Well, of course you're busy and stressed out. And, but like now I'm like, I want to be present and available for people. And it's been great. Like it has been really good. That's been a really good thing. So, you know, I'm privileged in the sense that I've been able to like leverage like a close to 20 year relationship with Shimano as an athlete and team manager into okay, now they're compensating me to be a consultant and still an athlete, you know, and, and they want me at events and, you know, it, that's been really, really lucky, but it wasn't just this like super privileged thing where I was like, Hey, Shimano, like give me this great contract. It was a lot of work again, you know, over 15, 18 years of like just knowing people, you know, being present, there's a lot of trust that's built. And, and that's one thing just when relationships are everything. And like when you're starting to work with, you know, say X brand calls you up, say specialized calls either one of us tomorrow. And it's like, Hey, we want to bring you in to consult on, you know, whatever, some project or a bigger deal or a bigger contract or something. And you're like, well, if you don't already have a personal relationship with the person that's interviewing you or talking to you, you know, and you don't have much of a relationship with the brand, like you need to start building trust and you can't some, uh, got someone from Arkansas said it like, uh, relationships move at the speed of trust, I think is the quote. I need to look that up. Um, and that's definitely always been my style. And then now intentionally pivoting into advocacy work is even more my style. You know, I'm like, Hey, like I'm white, I'm transgender. Um, I, my home base is Portland, Oregon, you know? And so when I go to other States, I'm, you know, I'm like upfront about that. I'm like, I'm not coming in here to tell you what to do or how to do it. Now, if a brand hires me to come in, there's, you know, it changes the dynamic, but still there's an element of trust. You know, you need to understand your client and your, you know, you can take a political look, like to understand your constituents and your audience. So then you can like effectively deliver, uh, you know, good advice and recommendations are also, you know, help develop better policy or practice. Um, so I, I pivoted away from productivity, but I will say I text myself nonstop. I love that. I just constantly text myself and it's the, like, it's part of it is that I can go and then delete the text. So here, let me just look. I'll tell you what my last text to myself. Um, there's a podcast. I wanted to listen to Magalie Rochette's fever talk about menstruation. I listened to that this morning. Uh, a threaded one inch PVC. I'm doing electrical work in my shop. Going up. Then, uh, Claire from Wolf Tooth, a, a little marketing advocacy discussion. Um, and then, yeah, it's like partners, you know, like I need to invoice. I'm not going to name the partners, but there's three cycling industry brands that I need to contact and invoice. And then when I'm done with it, I can go on my phone and I like just delete it and then it's done. And then I, you know, years ago, I got into the, like the whole Google ecosystem. I'm not a person that like loves or hates this. Like I'm not an Apple. I don't love or hate Apple. I don't love or hate Google. I'm like, you know what? Google's great. 
it's been easy for me to use, works for me in my brain. And then everything seems to kind of dump, you know, I put something on my phone, it shows up in the right calendar, my computer. Great. It's pretty seamless. Um, I just downloaded an app that, uh, it's like a creative app called Vero, V-E-R-O. That's supposed to be like, uh, for photographers. It's like, it's like a non-Instagram version of it's like really more focused on visual than, uh, Instagram's all like tiktok and stories and reels and video and everything. Um, I downloaded a couple other like, like Notion pr- productivity app. Oh, I tried with Notion and I was just, oh my God, I was out after like, well, the problem is Notion is such a rabbit hole and just trying to like get anything set up in there. Like it looks beautiful and you see other people's templates, but then when like you try to start doing it, it's just this like white screen and it's just, it's so much like blank space that I actually couldn't handle it. So I bailed after realizing it was going to take me like 40 hours to like maybe get it to do what I wanted it to do. Um, it also doesn't have any calendar function, really. Like, you can make a little calendar in it, but it doesn't sync to anything. So, not going to work. <laughs> if, if I was going to make recommendations or advice to anybody, like, if you haven't been using anything, like, just kind of pick one. And if it feels good, go with it, right? You know, like, you just didn't feel good about Notion, great. But you and I have been doing, like, kind of similar stuff for a long time. And I'm always like, you know, I think these days, too, with computers and everything, people are like, you know, you use Gmail and you're familiar with that, right? Or, you know, maybe you use a different mail client or, um, I'm always like, do whatever is easiest for you. Because part of it for me is that like, I will make lists and lists and then like nothing happens. And I'm like, I need to start quantifying. So again, this actually this year, I mean, partly last year, but really through this winter, when I went into this year, I was like, I can start saying no to shit. I don't have to be running around like crazy all the time. Like I got to do this and I got to do that. And I got to try and reach out. to And so part of this is like, and again, I'm coming to you from like, I have the privilege of having like 20 plus years in the cycling industry ecosystem and in the sport. So I have that. It is a privilege, but it's also been a lot of work, you know, but I can go, I, you know, I I say cut the check all the time. Partners will reach out to you. The people you want to work with will get back to you and reach out to you. I mean, I, there's someone I'm going to, there's a group of business I'm going to send an email to today. And I've probably emailed them like three times this year with no response, but I will do my diligence and I'll send them another email, update them. Hey, do you want to try to work together next calendar year? You know, let's have this conversation. Yes or no. But the other thing I've learned, and again, being in this more established place in my life, I just stopped chasing people around. And I probably should have done this a long, long time ago. Um, and it's not that like, oh, I'm hot shit and people are going to come to me and come to me. You know, we all need to kind of be, you know, when I talk about marketing too, especially in advocacy, it kind of has this, I think, a negative connotation a little bit, right? Like, you know, you don't just want to be marketing to black people. You actually want to be like actually a part of black, you know, you want to hire black people to then have them do marketing. But really marketing, I, I think of it in a way as like, well, again, you need to have a sense of your own value loosely as a freelancer, you know, as an advocate, what you're bringing to the table and then the kind of clients and people you want to work with. And then you do need to market to them. And, 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 Again, like take the negative connotation away from that word. I can think of a better word like outreach. You know, you want to be doing outreach and putting yourself out there. Um, 
you know, fortunately, like me being at events is great because I just meet new people. You know, every event there's somebody new and there's old friends and new friends. But um, I lost my point. No, I think, well, I think that's one of the biggest things you've mentioned relationships a bunch of times. And I think anyone who's looking to get into this line of work, the, the showing up at the events when you're like before you're getting paid to be there and like actually talking yeah. to people and, you know, making the, the connections. I mean, I remember meeting you at a bar in Bend at one of the USGPs, um, maybe 17 years ago now. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Yeah. And Byerson is the one that introduced us on the note of like people that you mentioned even in this call. So, you know, the, the sports industry worlds are all so tiny and so insular and it's, it's not that hard to kind of start making the relationships, but you do have to start making the relationships before you can necessarily, uh, you know, be, be asking for, for places to cut the check, which I think is a step that a lot of, uh, younger, younger people are, are missing these days to turn into like an old person, like, yeah. I mean, yes, I know. I, I, I know. And that's like something I'm so conscious of being an old person. And I don't want to be like, Oh, kids, you got to do it this way. But I just try to be practical. Like, and I have seen, um, how to put it this, this is actually a criticism. It is always wild to me when people will complain on social media about like doing business with X brand and like, they fucked me over and didn't pay me and blah, 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 blah. Right. And like most of the time it's that there were assumptions one way or the other, because again, in business, and if you're choosing to work with businesses, I mean, you cannot work with business. You can just work in the nonprofit sector, which is kind of like, this is all like adjacent. Um, and I'm doing more and more work, like just with other advocacy orgs and businesses and in the nonprofit kind of at actual advocacy world. But like, you know, my, my, core experiences in this like businessy sporty world of cycling so i'm always like contracts are contracts business world lives and dies by contracts um and if it wasn't in your contract you can't get pissed about it so i see that a lot and that ultimately is like i think i don't you know it could be a feeling of like inexperience like people will go into something i'm like look if it's not explicitly lined out you know if your contract doesn't explicitly say they're going to cover your travel and your luggage and all expenses incurred and then you go to invoice them for like four three hundred dollars in baggage fees and they don't pay it and you're pissed like you can't really be pissed because it wasn't in your contract so do your fucking diligence like read your contracts find a lawyer to review your contracts you know, I did. And like, it's not cheap, but in the long run, you know, even if you are paying a lawyer like 500 bucks for a one-time consulting fee to look at a contract, like it's going to save you heartache and embarrassment in the end. And like at the end of the day, complaining about, you know, a contract, well, it's on you, you know, like you accepted the contract and the terms in it. So. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'll also add like the bike industry is such a small world. So like once you burn one company, the odds that someone from that company are go is going to move to a company yeah. that you later want to work for is just so high. So yeah, never, never yeah. a great, uh, never a great thing. I actually wrote about that in the, uh, the athlete's guide to sponsorship book that I did. Um, yeah. because it's just like, yeah, it's such a big thing. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah. And like, get it in writing is what I'm always like, get it in writing, you know, and if it's not in writing, that there's your answer right there. You know, if you're like, exactly. hey, are you going to send me that bike? Are you going to send me that bike? And then you're not getting it in writing back. Like you're not, you know, don't expect, you know, but, and I will say too, 
seeing folks come from uh you know actual tv other basically other industries i was gonna say tv but like not hollywood hollywood but when you have other creatives or you have other athletes or you have other brands or business people coming in from other industries and they come into the like the small little business world of the cycling ecosystem like it's it's not like it's just wild the budgets that cycling has these like shoestring budgets, you know, and it's cool in a way because we can like pull off a lot with a little budget. But like now I'm like, no, cut the check. Like my time is money. I'm not going to do this film product for you for like 1500 bucks. No, like that's a $10,000, $20,000 project. And like, you know, this is business. So as much as like, you know, corporations are business, like it's good to, for you to act as like an empathetic business because again, like, if you're struggling to pay your bills, that's going to be stressing you out and that's going to inhibit your creativity and your passion and your drive to like, and your ability to advocate for other people, you know? So if you're not advocating for yourself up front to make your life sustainable, like how the hell are you going to be able to advocate for other people? So that's been the pivot I've had to do emotionally and mentally in the last two years is be like, you know what? It's okay to get paid to do this work. You know, like I should be getting paid. People of color should be getting paid. Women should be getting paid more. Like queers and trans folks should be getting hired and paid. So, you know, it's not just like cut the check to Molly Cameron. It's like cut the check to all of us and then study your contracts, (laughs) you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. Um, And I loved what you mentioned before about even just that you were going to put together a rate card. And I think for for anyone, that's a good exercise, whether or not you're going to send the rate card to anyone. Like I think making it just for yourself. So you have that starting point. So not every time you're trying to put together a proposal, you at least have something that you're looking at. It's like, okay, this is what I've done in the past. This is what I'm going to ask for. And it kind of almost like holds you accountable to yourself that you have to like ask that dollar amount per hour or, you know, per project or whatever. Um, I love that. Um, And then that also serves to weed out the clients that don't want to pay or, you know, the clients or organizations um, where you're like, well, you know, here's my rate. My daily speaking fee is 1500 bucks. And that's a three hour window of time uh, on one day. And then, you know, it's great. And, you know, you can always negotiate, there's always room. That's what I always say. I'm like, you know, try to have a real sense of your value. You know, are there other people out there in the world doing what you're doing? Uh, what's your unique value proposition? Um, and get familiar with all these weird acronyms and business terms and expressions. You know, I do, I still, I mean, I still, somebody will drop something in a meeting or I'll be on like a zoom call or something. I'll be like, what the hell is that acronym? And I'm like Googling and I'm like, Oh, okay. Like key performance indicator. I knew that, but I just, I don't use it all the time. And like, and it's just different region to region and business to business and the lingo. I like, I, I hate it. I really do hate it. I would rather have like interpersonal conversations, but again, like I want to help steer larger global, like at least state level, big changes. Cause those are the things that are really going to help save the planet and help save us from each other, you know? And, um, yeah, being familiar with that language is important. And then, yeah. I love it. And that kind of leads into the last thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you know, we've talked about photography. We've touched on it a couple of times. Mm. Uh, you know, this is something you taught yourself. Obviously, you know, a lot of what we just talked about, the business stuff, it's stuff that you kind of just pulled together over years of doing this. Uh, maybe photography is probably like the best example. You got into it during the pandemic. 
How did you go about just like this learning process of like, I want to get into photography. I'm going to be pretty good at it. And I mean, it's clearly served you pretty well. Like, <laughs> I feel like photography and video stuff at this point is just like, if you can have even like moderate skill in it, it's going to be such a helpful, like added yeah. tool for like any job that you do. Well, I didn't get into it saying like, I'm going to be really good at this. I literally, this is actually just again, like a really kind of cool thing that just kind of randomly happened, but it happened because of my relationships. So, um, my, my women's bike race teams, two title sponsors are automotive brands, Point S, Gills, Point S, Tire and Auto owned by my buddy, Eric Gill. He's been a sponsor of the team and mine for, again, close to, gosh, 18 years or something. And Nokian Tires, which is a um, Finnish tire manufacturer. They make car tires. They used to make Kakapolita, like snow. They used to make bicycle tires. So they're famous for like snow and ice bike tires. They don't make or distribute. They don't make them in the U.S. anymore. But anyways, uh, and Nokian also. So interestingly enough, automotive is way ahead of the sustainability game than the cycling industry is um and driven largely from the top down from racing so f1 you it doesn't take much digging to f- see the the businesses and even the structure of f1 i mean granted it's not the entire focus of f1 because again f1 is a business and it's in the business of selling its product which is formula one racing but they know they're like, look, like we need sustainable fuels. Like they just are, you know, the business, again, the business case is they're realizing like, this is just getting more and more expensive. It's also not sustainable. Also like public opinion and specifically to Finland, no key entires is based there. And they're so sustainability focused. Like you look at their social media and their marketing and then also their product and their, their business goals they're like sustainability is front and center. I mean, it's almost in every single piece of marketing or literature they put out. And uh, Gil's Point Us Tire and Auto is like an oil change and tire shop, bunch of stores in all over the U.S. Um, at the retail level, it's a little slower to embrace. You know, it'd be like a bike shop in your in your town, like being like a global leader in sustainability. Like probably not going to happen. But bike shops are always like, how do we recycle inner tubes? Like, it, you know, how do we recycle all this scrap metal? Like, what can we do? And, you know, how do we cut down on waste? And you know, you used recyclable uh, solvent in our solvent tank and stuff like that. Long story short, my two automotive brands, when the pandemic happened, you know, again, it was early spring of a couple years ago. And I I called them both up separately. Like, hey, can we have a call? And I was like, look, uh, it looks like we're fucked. There's not going to be any racing this year. I, I was like, it was March at that point. I was like, and I was like, you know, again, contracts, their contracts, they pay me to do this like mark to market basically to market and promote their brands. And I just was like, Hey, I just want to start this conversation. And it was really quick and easy. Both brands separately were like, you know what? Don't worry about it. We're going to honor our contract with you through the year. Um, we'll revisit it this summer when we see what's shaking. Cause I was like, Hey, this could be like years of this pandemic. Like we could be in for something like, so what do you want to do this year? And they both were like, Hey, we're honoring our contracts. And then not like a couple weeks later, um, Eric from Gills point S was like, calls me up he's like hey you do some uh, video work right and i just said yes because again what i used to do was i said yes to everything it didn't matter it didn't matter if, if it was like way outside of my scope of ability i just said yes and i would figure it out later so literally i was like yeah of course because i figured 
like I've always had a little interest. I took photography in high school and I'm in the black room and I developed black and white photos, but like, of course you did. You were like punk rock in the nineties. Yeah, it was sort of exactly. like a requirement. We were listening to Jane's addiction in the dark room and you know, I don't know, um, talk about the tattoos we're going to get when we turn 18. Um, <laughs> so I, but none of that like stuck with me. I honestly, I couldn't, I don't actually shoot much in black and white now. And like, um, anyways, I did, but I said yes to this guy and he's like, cool. Well, what I want you to do is like, we want to like during the pandemic we're we want to go to each of the stores here in Oregon and like do manager interviews. So I basically had this project, which was really easy and kind of pandemic safe. Like I would go to the stores and I would shoot exterior shots of the stores and then interior shots. So what I did was I asked, you know, again, you and I have been in cycling. We know all these amazing creatives and video people and photographers. And so two of my best friends in town are professional wedding photographers. And I said, Hey, I got to shoot all this video. Like, do you guys have any gear I can borrow? Um, what do you think? And I, and I was like, you know, what do you think? Like, do you want this work? I, and honestly, the budget wasn't like huge. And I, so I was like, Oh, it's great. I don't have a lot else going on. There's no bike racing. I'm not training or really riding bikes. And so I just pivoted completely into video work. So I didn't actually shoot still photos. Um, I borrowed equipment. And then after I got the first little paycheck from doing the first couple weeks of the project, I was like, Hey, I have a few grand. Like, what should I buy to shoot like 4K video? And another creative friend was like, buy a little, um, Panasonic Lumix, um, it'll G, I forget what it is, G4 or something. And, uh, um, It'll shoot 4K, takes good 4K video and you get some cheap cinema lenses for it. And so I just started shooting and those first few stores are garbage, but then I did the same thing like 20 times. So it was such good practice to like, I would just drive out to the store location. I would like set up the tripod and I would just take some exterior panning shots of the store and then I would go in and I would have the manager sit down. It would just look like this. I would frame it kind of like this Zoom call and then would just like hit the camera and I would, I had a handful of interview questions, much like your podcast. And it was great. It was kind of like in-person podcasting a bit. I would just ask a question and let them talk. And I'm like, I, I know that I'm pretty good at like, I, A, I'm pretty good at talking, but B, I'm good at getting people to talk, you know, and like get them to open up. And so I'm going to all these stores and again, conservative rural Oregon. And, you know, uh, it's an interesting thing to go in as Molly and, you know, some of them knew I, I used she, her pronouns. Some of them, it never came up, you know, I'm just there to, to like interview these guys. Car guys don't want, like they, none of them want to be in front of a camera. They hated it. And so some of them definitely was just like very stiff, not interested. And others, like I would just get to talking about them and learn some like really interesting stories. So I shot a couple dozen of this. And so then by the end, I had bought some of my own camera gear. I, I was borrowing them. And then, you know, like I knew how to like shoot and do this stuff. And so the most simple way to explain it in bike racer terms is like, look, as an athlete, I would train 20 something hours a week. My entire world was cycling and training and recovery and my diet and my gear, and my equipment. I didn't ride bikes at all that first year of the pandemic. It's all on Strava. I kind of laugh. I'm like, I think in February I was in LA and then we were like, oh gosh, this pandemic's getting real. And so I ended up flying back to Portland and then that was the most I rode all year. I rode like once a month. I just pivoted entirely into video. And, you know, it was a real, again, this like 
privileged thing because I was getting paid to do it. It wasn't like I got into it as a hobby. I wouldn't have pivoted into it that hard if it was a hobby. I don't think I would have gone and spent like a few grand on some, you know, a, a little video camera and some lenses. Um, and then luckily like leaning on the creative, like my good friends that are creatives and then they all like wanted to help. And then I just had good practice of like doing this similar style thing 20 different times. And so by the end, it was just like, I knew how to do it. I was more efficient. Then I started like trying to learn how to video edit, which is a whole other world of like, I'm still like, I can do it. It just, I'm not good at it. It takes me forever. And oh, then, same. At one point, yeah, like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Flow bikes at one point was like, oh, so you know how to use Adobe Premiere, right? And I was like, sure. Yes, exactly. I yes. do. So, like, you know, that's the thing. That's what I did. I was like, sure, I can do it. And then, you know, and, and that was great. And then that was like contract work. And then that ended after I shot all the stores. And then I was doing some other smaller contract work. And honestly, it got to a point where I was like, Hey, this isn't enough budget for me to like take a day, you know, because then it got to a point where I was like, Oh, I'm like competent at this. I would never say I'm a good DP or videographer or whatever. Like I can shoot okay. And I have a good reasonable eye. Like I know what I want to see and how to frame it. I have a world, I still have a world of like technical things to learn. Um, but I realized the camera I had was shit at taking photos. I was like, why do my photos just don't look good? And like, then one of my professional photographer friends was like, you need to just buy the cheapest full frame camera. Just go buy like a used any brand, but get a full frame camera. And so full frame is like 35 millimeter. And I never like, again, this is like, I'm just discovering all this. I didn't realize the video cameras I had didn't have a very big sensor and it had like a smaller crop sensor so the photos just like they were fine they just didn't look incredible so i went and bought like a 500 canon digital like full frame camera and it was like the first photos i took i was like mind blown like oh that's what i need and then canon came out with a newer one that did both as like a powerful um, and at that point I had some camera gear. So I was like sold a bunch of the old camera gear and then bought this one newer Canon and was like, you know, it's kind of like ISA. It's like new mountain. It's like new road and mountain bikes. Like a new $1,500 mountain bike right now is better than like the mountain bikes we were spending five grand on 10 years ago. Like you have so much fun. The suspension works great. It's awesome. Like it might not be the lightest thing out there, but it's going to ride and work a million times better. And it's kind of the same thing with a lot of technology. Like, I'm not really a huge gear geek, you know, like I'm not geeking out of, I got to get this new lens and I got to get that. I just was like, new technology works better. It just works. And then Canon came out with this whole new R system and, and like, it's like, you know, it's not a gimmick. And then I talked to my photographer friends and they were like, well, it's kind of expensive, but like all the new lenses will be this R series. The new cameras are insane. So sure. If you can sell off all this old gear you bought and like buy one of those bodies, like it's the good investment. And and then, you know, like with any of that stuff, you can always sell it. I was like, well, if I, and so then I kind of pivoted into photos and I just like love it. And then again, I'm still learning and, um, you know, like I make a little money here and there from photos, but it's definitely not, again, this is part of like, can kind of personally say no to that. I'm not trying to make photography like my main hustle. I, frankly, I just, I don't think I'm good enough. Like I think I can take an okay photo and there's some I've taken that I really liked, but I'm also like, you know, like, I think I'm a little ways away from like, again, like specialized calling me up and being like, we want to bring you in for this shoot. I'm like, no, there's like, cause now I wouldn't just be like, sure, I can do that. I'd be like, no, why don't you hire like, you know, Dominique Powers or, you know, like an idiot list of any other 
bunch of really good photographers. I would rather see them do it because they're actually professionals. And yeah, so photography, it's really, really fun and really challenging. And yeah. and it does help. Like I can, again, when I'm done with this call, I'm going to literally switch over to the PowerPoint presentation exactly. and start dropping photos in that like I took so I don't have to negotiate buying the rights. And then also for me too, in the work, it like kind of shows the work. I'd be like, I was at this event. Here's photos from this event. Here's, you know, um, good things that we saw. And here's some places, you know, that, you know, Shimano has some opportunities here. And here's what I I recommend we do different. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, when you're talking about advocacy as a career, the ability to tell the story in some way or another, whether it's your, you know, decent at video or photography or, you know, audio or writing, like any of those things, I think you do need to kind of figure out like, how are you going to like get your message across, but then also, like you said, show your work after the fact. So I think that's like such a real, like good thing for people to be thinking about as they're trying to get into it, because otherwise you're hauled up in front of a board going like, well, I did some stuff. Um, yeah. And you're like nervous about public speaking too. So now you're just under the desk and it's a whole thing. Um <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm nervous. I mean, yeah, this this people for bikes thing. Um again, all this stuff, advocacy, photography, and video, like I just took the time and the energy I put into training and preparing to be a bike racer into advocacy and photo work. And so in the same sense. I'm going to be in Arkansas for two weeks in October or more. And, you know, I'm, there'll be big sugar bike race. I'll be there. There's a Fayetteville world cup I'll be at. And then there'll be this people for bikes conference and I'm pretty sure I'm speaking and I'm doing a ride. I don't know. I'm doing a few things. And so I'm like, I need to train and prepare for that. Literally. I'm already like making notes and like thinking about kind of t- like you said, that's like whiteboard that I'm like, okay, I have a few different things that I'd like to talk about, but what, you know, and then I'm going to train for it. I mean, literally, like, that's kind of my approach is like, I'm going to prepare and train for it and then try to understand like my audience at the conference, but also my client in people for bikes who are paying, you know, bringing me in to do this. Um, and then also I have to give a, I give a shit about it, right? Like talk about what I care about. And I'm like, I care about this, like trying to change people's transgender and LGBTQIA people's lives for the better, not just in cycling, but cycling is a really good vehicle for change. And it, you know, I'm leveraging the hell out of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just to make cycling better, but to help cycling make people's lives better and easier. And yeah. And it's, It's kind of interesting that, you know, we first kind of reconnected as we were both working on some of the articles around the trans stuff happening in Arkansas a year and a half ago. Oh, gosh. Two years ago? Oh, geez. No, A a year ago. A year ago. Yeah. Yeah. A year year and a half because it's September now and it was in the the spring of last year. Isn't it just crazy? Like, it just seems like it was years ago. It seems so long ago. But isn't it kind of funny that we're kind of closing this current circle anyway, where we're going to be back in Bentonville in a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, yeah. that's, that's where all, a lot of this stuff is happening. Um, it, like, I don't think there's anything particularly philosophical about it, but it is kind of this like very poetic, interesting thing that's, uh, that's sort of happened. Yeah. I mean, 
love I, I I like I love Bentonville. I love Northwest Arkansas. I just love the South. Uh but I love it because stuff is happening down there, you know, and it's not like every weekend there's some amazing conference or seminar or summit, but like the writing's really good and the coffee's great. And I've got a lot of really good friends and personal relationships now. And, you know, there's so many compelling reasons for me to be there, but then also there's money, like there's Walmart money. Um, and you know, it just, there's, it's not a derogatory thing when I say like there's Walmart money. It just means there's a family of billionaires and they all have a lot of various interests like art and mountain biking and, you know, and the business, the family business and just means stuff will happen. You know, it'd be like kind of being in LA. If you want to be in film, you know, you're like, you go to SoCal or LA and there's just like that the world is there. The ecosystem's there. There's money there. You can go a million different directions, you know, more opportunities, you know, and yeah, there's a lot happening in cycling down there. So it's like such a great place to be. And then, you know, and you and I, you know, old friends, new friends, like you and I will get to spend some time together and then be doing our current hustles. And, um, and then there's a need. I mean, back to the advocacy piece, there's a need. Uh, for real work. And the one good thing I'll say about generally down there in Arkansas is like, they really want to do it the right way. And they're really conscious of like paying people for their work. And, you know, which is a typical of the cycling industry where people and brands are like, well, how much can we get for, you know, we don't have a lot of budget, but do you want to like do this huge project that's going to be mentally and emotionally draining and take up all your time? And as hustlers in cycling, we're like, yes, of course we want to do that for $500. And you're like, no, like, no, you know, there will always be someone who will work for less than you. And there are people that are more established and will make more money than you for the same project. Right. And you should aspire to make as much money as you can for yourself, for the work that you're doing, you know, and that's, what's fair, you know, and over time, you'll get better as your relationships develop and your reputation develops, you'll get better. But nothing, nothing wrong with that because I'm, I'm realizing in my old age, the more, the more solid my foundation is, the better I can do. I can help other people. Um, instead of the way I've been doing it for years, you know, with the women's team, it was like, we have a shoestring budget, but I'm going to make all this amazing shit happen. And it's like, no, it was just like causing me a lot of life stress and fiscal stress. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Okay. This has been amazing, but yeah, we should, yeah, we should wrap, wrap it up. Where can everyone find, follow, et cetera, with everything that you're doing? Well, I'm easy to find um, generally the Molly Cameron on any, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, you, know, you can Google Molly Cameron. Uh, I'm working on a podcast of my own as much as someday, maybe, maybe this fall. I don't have a hard deadline on when we're going to release. But that's a project that's nice. coming. So, um, yeah, mollycameron.com and then ridegroup.org, um, is the current website for ride, which I'm going to do a little rebrand, keep it ride, change the meaning of the individual words and the acronym. And then, yeah. Nice. All right. We'll include links to all of that in the show notes. Molly, thank you so much for doing this. This was so much fun. So many good things out of this. Ah, always so good to see you and see you in a few weeks. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Molly. I will say, you know, we went in so many different directions that I didn't really think that we were going to go. And one of the through lines that I just really appreciated was this discussion that it's okay 
to want to get paid for the work you're doing. And I think as a society, as women in particular, we've been kind of indoctrinated to not feel like we're supposed to get paid for doing work like advocacy, like bike racing, uh, like a lot of things in women's fitness. Uh, but, you know, if you're doing the work, you deserve to get paid for it. And I really love Molly's point about making a rate card, whether or not you're actually going to send it to people, just making that rate card for your own clarification into what your hourly is, what your project rate is. Uh, that can just be so helpful, keeping you honest when you are sending proposals to companies. Uh, it avoids you kind of downselling yourself. This kind of just forces you to really think about what it is that you're worth. Uh, I love just the phrase, cut the check. I swear, I feel like I need to tattoo it onto my wrist so I remember it at all times. Uh, definitely one of the most important parts of this. Uh, and, you know, the most important th part, though, I think is Molly's original point that if you're getting into this field, you have to care. You have to care so much. This is not the kind of job where you get to leave it all behind at the office, close the door, walk away, shut the computer off. Uh, this is this is stuff that sits on your mind. It sits on your heart. It takes an emotional toll on you. And like Molly says, you do need to spend time paying attention to how you're feeling and take care of your own emotional well-being if this is actually the career path that you want to be in. So, you know, it's it's a great career path. Advocacy is so important, whether you're joining nonprofits, as Molly points out, or you're trying to work within the business sphere, which is equally important. So hopefully you got a lot from this episode. Definitely hit me up over on Instagram. I am at Molly J. Herford. And of course, Molly Cameron is at the Molly Cameron. We are the two Mollies of cycling. Uh, and I just loved this episode so much. I hope you did too. Uh, and let us know what you think. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>